Welcome to PodCash, the portable professional development podcast from Cash Alumni. Cash Alumni is the fastest growing association of professionals in care, health and education. And we're happy to have you here. This is where you'll hear from specialists and experts from across our network. Here's what's coming up. What I do know that as individuals, we need to think about our own personal growth and our own personal development. If we don't develop personally, we don't develop professionally. Let's jump in to this week's episode. I'm really chuffed to be able to say that today I'm talking to Alison Featherby, who spoke at our recent event, um, and I'm dead excited to be able to catch up on a, a more conversational basis today. Alison, for anyone who wasn't at our event, do you want to just let them know a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do? Thank you. Lovely to talk again. Uh, So my name's Alison Featherby and I'm an early years consultant and trainer and I help and support owners, leaders and managers who are delivering the EYFS so that they feel confident, well-informed. I'm able to provide training and support for their teams. I consider myself sort of a critical friend. So I have been in early years for over 35 years. So I know where you are and uh, I'm able to take that point and to help you and move you and your team forward. It sounds a little bit like you're a bit of a, like, a professional like supervisor person, like to come in and like, you know, people have supervision or time where they've got someone to chat to. Is that the role that you play but on a a freelance basis (laughs) that's a really good explanation of uh, it's just one of the things that I do but I really recognize that private voluntary and independent providers often don't have anyone to talk to Uh, when they go home at the end of the day uh, nobody wants to hear what a difficult day it's been sometimes the people that we live with are unable to solve all of our problems but we all need a debrief at times and we need a trusted source to um, go and chat that over with somebody that's been there, seen there, done it, maybe a bit further down the line, somebody that could mentor and coach so that they can help you to solve your problems and to think about ways of addressing those issues that come up naturally from day to day or term to term. We know that the role of the local authority has changed very much over the, certainly the last few years, and there often isn't a point of contact to to reach out to. So yes, when you lead and manage, sometimes you do feel very alone. Some people have really strong senior teams and they're able to bash those things around and to and to solve their problems together. But very often people are really isolated and on their own and, and not sure where to turn to. So I consider myself a trusted source and somebody that's able to help and support and guide. I think that's a really good point, actually, because I think we've all felt that a little bit in ways that we might not have necessarily been able to empathize before but during the pandemic and the whole like shift to a lot of office work as working from home I think we've all missed having that person sitting next to you in the same job role or in a similar role where you can turn to them and say oh for and have a little bit of a a rant almost about the thing that's just happened or you know the phone call you've just hung up on or, or those those really frustrating things that happened during your day in settings, thinking about the way that earlier settings are set up, obviously the people who are leading, there isn't necessarily just someone for them to grab for, because they're all people who are maybe relying on you to to set that positive, like everything's fine tone and to carry them along. 
In terms of within settings, is that something settings generally do well within themselves in terms of that that downwards mentoring? So like in terms of if you're talking about you're going in and looking and supporting leadership teams, is that leadership team to, I suppose, understand the value of that mentoring and coaching within their own team and things like that? One of the things that we know where we all thrive is within a community. So if we are a manager or or an owner or a leader and and we're on our own, we tend to reach out to our immediate community. So it may be like-minded professionals like me, or it could be another owner or leader or manager down the road, or it could be that you're in a group of settings and then there's some community there. Or it could be that you are part of a small or even a bigger chain. And so you do have that uh, support from uh, sort of like top upwards. But when you are on your own and you want to also create that type of community as well within your own setting, because we know that that's where people feel happy, safe and secure. But we also know that that means that we um, lead from the front door and not from the office door. Um, But that also means that we really need to think about how can we do that as professionally as possible and how can we ensure that we make everybody feel that they can grow and develop just like children do. A really good place to start around that uh, is obviously uh, having that vision and those values um, that we all live by both personally but certainly professionally uh, whereas that is captured um, and that's something that we refer to daily sometimes and that makes sure that everybody feels respected heard that they're able to make mistakes because we know because we work with children that placing ourselves in in challenging situations and making mistakes are actually how we all learn with they're definitely how children learn but they're how we learn and continue to learn as adults as well and to do that in a safe environment that allows you to grow from those mistakes is really important but it's a hard thing to replicate and we're I think we're all trying to do that because obviously we don't want huge mistakes because they can very often result in really difficult situations where we have to reach out to other professionals to help and guide us obviously and of course we absolutely don't want to make mistakes where that places children in danger really really sadly that does happen And there are a number of cases that have happened more recently where, very sadly, children have really, really suffered and sadly died within a setting. And all of us need to obviously think about that and avoid that absolutely wherever as possible. So we need to make sure that our team feels safe in the decisions that they're making, but also make sure that we are helping them with our policies with our procedures, with everything that's in the EYFS so that we can um, provide a safe, happy and secure environment for children to thrive in. That's incredibly important, thinking about, I suppose, the very worst case scenario of, of what happens when, when stuff doesn't necessarily work properly. Um, the stuff you were talking about around that building of a community 
I suppose that all plays a part in preventing that stuff from happening, doesn't it? Because then everyone is on the same team and working towards the same things and, and with the same sort of watch on everything. There isn't that like, well, that's not my job or there's not that loss of, of oversight or, or working between teams where there's the chance of things getting lost. What about those settings that are listening who maybe think that they could do more to have more cohesion within their setting or, or what, what can people do to build that sense of trust and community between colleagues? That's a really interesting point and one that um, I have many, many conversations around. So what you're talking about there is a culture of the setting. It's how you continue every day with that moral code, with that recognition that there are policies and procedures in place that we need to adhere to, but that we need to be in flow, that we need to be creative and that we're all working together. And our culture is really important. So I would definitely suggest that people um, sit in a room uh, and maybe just just look and feel what that room looks like, feel what your provision looks like. Don't say anything, just have a look at every child and think, what is it like for a child here? And if we do that, we need to do that where it's a situation where our team don't turn into a practitioner that they're not always all of the time something that I bring into my training is what sort of practitioner are you or educator are you when no one is watching and that's a really important point to remember because it makes us all think about those times in the day where actually we're either on our own or we're just not got our finger on the pulse or we're waiting for something to happen um, and so that question, I definitely think, roll out to your teams, but try and capture what your culture is, that sort of baseline, those things that regularly happen from first thing in the morning till last thing at night, and then look at that culture critically and think, where where do I need to make some changes and make small steps, not big steps, because we know that people don't really like that and it doesn't work very well. Um, and what we're talking about is habits changing habits. Um, so think of one habit or two habits or three habits that you want to, to stop. Have a discussion about that and how can we do that um, and make sure everybody commits to that. All of those habits and all of those things that you want to change, if you start with what's it like for a child in your setting, every decision and heavy, every habit that you're aiming to change is based on children, the needs of children in, in your room. And it is important to always be consistent, which is something that I advocate to. That's really interesting. Um, I think, especially in the context of this morning, um, when I saw very briefly online a conversation about some of today's newspaper headlines about sort of Instagrammable spaces for young people and the idea that everything's turned beige and it's because of social media, it's not because it's good for children. But then also seeing some professionals like Dr. Minajong Bayer talking about actually how that's not true and the reason that spaces have become more muted tones is actually because it's good for kids. And that's why it's ended up on Instagram, not the other way around. And I think that idea of being a good practitioner when nobody's watching is probably also true the other way around and making sure that you retain your values as a practitioner 
even when the world's watching, because it would be really easy to be influenced by newspaper articles and by the sort of say-so of like, well, that's just because, and that sort of dismissal, as it would be to be swayed away from tried and tested pedagogy and that actual sort of research behind why early years practitioners make the decisions to do because of that very public lens of scorn being poured on things that are actually really good for kids. Wow, there's so much in there. Definitely social media has become part of our lives. It's become all of our lives. It has become really useful where we can connect with people really quickly and get answers to to, to things. Uh, we can see information really quickly. We, there's lots of free training out there and free blogs that we can read and that we can access. And all of these are coming into us at 100 million miles an hour. And sometimes it's hard to filter out all of those things. Um, and we get really overwhelmed with the amount of information that, that comes to us. And sometimes we're not able to steer our way through that confidently. Uh, now, I know that if we are knowledgeable and experienced and secure in our vision and values and secure in the way that we teach and secure in the things that we want to provide children, then we can really steer ourselves through. But it is really difficult because there is such an, a tremendous amount of information out there that actually can be quite confusing. So the example of a colourful, let's say, uh, environment uh, versus a beige environment, that is absolutely for you to decide because nobody knows your children, your community, your team as well as you do. And absolutely, there's lots of research to tell, to tell us about um, a really busy and lively and over-colourful environment. There's lots of research to say that children uh, need a calm environment. Certain children do uh, because they might find it really difficult to react and to focus uh, with a really particularly busy environment. But there's also information to say that children need stimulation and children need to see creativity on our walls and in our displays so that they are sparked and their imagination and curiosity is, is sparked in the resources and the activities and experiences and the environment that we do provide. So steer your way through. And I know that's not easy. Um, consider all the information. It is the perspectives that I truly believe that do give us confidence. And we do have to listen to lots of different perspectives to um, inform our own opinion. And some of those perspectives may change our opinion, um, which is also good too. So for me, there is no right and there is no wrong. It's our children that we need to listen to and their environment will tell us if they feel happy, safe and secure um, and that their outcomes will also tell us that actually we've provided the right environment for them at this particular time. So, yes, and, and it could change according to your cohort of children. Next year, you could get a, a different cohort of children that need a different environment. So we've always got to be flexible. We've always got to be really creative. We've always got to think on our feet. But uh, that's why I particularly enjoy uh, our sector. So yes, lots of information coming uh, and just steer your way through. 
This is Podcash, brought to you by Cash Alumni. For job search and careers advice in care, health, and education, why not try our state-of-the-art SkillsMiner AI tool? SkillsMiner is under the careers tab of cashalumni.org.uk. That's cashalumni.org.uk. Speaking to our members and extrapolating out them as the sort of whole sector, I'm always really taken aback by how little early years practitioners think of themselves and their skills in terms of being professionals. When you think about how much early years professionals do um, and plan and the sort of thought that goes into all of the interactions that they have and everything that surrounds what they do, that there is sometimes this I'm not important enough to make those decisions and this deferral that happens. And I don't know whether that's like related to the messaging that early years professionals get, like through school, where there's this sort of like it's a it's a lesser career path almost, or like I, I don't know what causes it. And I suppose you would can now see early years professionals starting to share more of their own practice on things like social media, which I think is one of the really nice side effects almost of social media that there is so much practice sharing and so much look what I've done over here for people to be able to cherry pick the bits that they want to take from it. For sure that is really nice to see other people's environments and other things that they they've set up but I would urge people to steer away from what other people and what I've certainly called is a Pinterest pedagogy where we're looking at people's environments and they're certainly one thing about, you know, tough spot trays. Uh, And we're looking at how very clever people are when they set up a farm with uh, Weetabix that stands on edge and, and look like fences and a lovely pathway through and cows strategically placed. And boy, does that look really lovely. But those of us that have been in early years for uh, some time will know that children come into that provision and they don't want to play farms. They've had they've got a different idea. And that's half an hour. And it's probably more than half an hour that those practitioners have taken to set up that environment um, has, has not really been fully appreciated. And children should, I believe, have their own ideas about what they want to play with. And it's up to us as um, educators, teachers, practitioners to see where children are at, see what they're interested in and provide those teachable moments, those rich opportunities that we can absolutely do. So I do believe that children need to be creative and they need to use their imagination and think about what they want to play with. I can remember being bored as a child and thinking, right, what should I do today? And actually, it's a really exciting place to be because it challenges you. It helps you to think about what you're going to do. It helps you to get into flow and to use all of that knowledge and experience and all of those actions that you've developed in a different way. So, yes, let's get back some of that thinking. Let's get back that imagination because we know that those children really are going to need that in the in the years to come. Yeah, that makes sense. That idea, I suppose, that in amongst all of that good practice, there will be some people who are out there doing it for the likes and sort of setting things up sort of for the wrong audience rather than for the kids, but for the Instagram audience or for whoever else is there. But you are equally also always going to get those kids who come in and 
pick up a car and use it as a phone or any of those sorts of things that happen where like they will always use their imaginations to do whatever they're going to do with that environment. I think one of the things that you just said that was really important or interesting is the bit about that being half an hour that that practitioner has taken to set that environment up that's not going to be appreciated and that it's that linking of those things back to time management so where it might be perfectly possible to go on to the internet and find an activity to do that's going to look good and it would technically take loads of boxes and it would be great it's about thinking that whole thing through like actually what are we going to get out of this? What is it going to satisfy? Who is it going to help? Will it help little Timmy? Will it help John? Will it help? I don't know what kids are called now. I don't have any. So those things like versus how long is it going to take? And actually, how how could I spend that time if it wasn't doing this? Do you have much experience of that side of things, of thinking about that actual time management aspect? And actually, what are you getting out of the day? What I absolutely do know is that anyone who works in early years really appreciates the value of play. And we all play as adults still, hopefully, too, and we all understand what that fun feels like, what that real intense uh, flow feels like when, when we ourselves are playing. But what we do when we're working in the sector, we really want to be a play partner. We want to play alongside and with children and bearing in mind that balance between obviously interacting or interfering um, that comes with knowledge and experience. But creating something together with a child is so valuable. We get lots of rich information and lots of open-ended discussions and begin to really think together about what we can work on, what we can provide, how we're going to solve the problems. And if we model being a play partner with children, what we do know is that they will model being a play partner with other children, maybe of different ages, of different stages. Um, And that, of course, is hugely beneficial um, to creating uh, citizenship and helping children to to work together because we absolutely know that that's going to be a, a skill that they really will need moving forward as well. As for time management, I think sometimes we are amazed at how long things take us. So monitoring that is a key part of helping us to move forward. I certainly would advocate people keeping a close check on their time and then having a look at that information and looking at those numbers and thinking, okay, where is my time mostly spent? Now, if you look at that's where that time is mostly spent and you think, okay, so what value did that provide? And it provided very little value. We all have a certain amount of time in the day and you have to think to yourself, OK, all of that time was spent doing that. And there was there was no huge outcome or no value to the children that I'm providing care and education for or no value to my team. Some of the things that we have a little amount of time for can be hugely valuable. So like a teachable moment can take seconds where you talk to a child and say, I wonder what you're going to do with this and um, use that rich, sustained, shared thinking that we have, that can take seconds. But the value of that is absolutely huge and enormous. So why not think about your time, think about how you're using it, uh, monitor it over a week or even monitor it over a couple of weeks and try and identify where your time is most spent and then really look at the value 
of that. Uh, and then our, our, honestly, our mindsets do shift. And we know that recently because we've had a big shift in the amount of time that we spend on paperwork. I saw about the, the stuff about the paperwork shifting and I was absorbed in loads of interest and in online conversations between practitioners about them. What was really interesting about what you just said was talking about adults and thinking about that sort of being like partners in play. What about adults who struggle with the concept of play for themselves? I know loads of adults who gave up on playing and loads of adults, I suppose, like myself, who didn't really know how to play as kids and sort of figured it out as we got older and learning that there's loads of different things that can be play. Like I love a tinker on with something or a making of something with macrame or something like that, where there's still an objective, but I get to play to get there and do that weird, like non-work problem solving. What can adults do to figure out that value of play for themselves so that they can then embed that? Because you can't really be a partner in play unless you know how to do it. If that was me, I would be thinking, okay, where do I feel happiest, safest and securest? Where am I in flow? Where do I uh, my or is all my well-being box ticked what am i doing either personally or professionally where i feel in flow and when you're in flow you can't hear anything that's going on you're completely absorbed in what you're doing uh time uh flies out of the window um so for example i'm in flow at the weekend where i'm in my kitchen and i'm cooking and i'm opening all the cupboards and i'm mixing things and i'm looking at a recipe i'm probably listening to something as well that's my happy place and i love doing that and that for me is my play that's what i'm doing i'm totally absorbed it is it's taken me sometimes out of my comfort zone because i have got a new recipe book and i'm not sure what this recipe is going to turn out like or this not sure if anybody's going to enjoy it and sometimes i need to think oh i haven't got that particular product now i need to go to the shop and and sometimes it's frustrating and sometimes it doesn't work out but I've learned and I've been in flow and I've enjoyed that experience um, and it, it, it meets all of, my, all of my needs. And I know that every practitioner and every educator has been through a, a totally different journey uh, into coming into the sector. But I do think it's one of the first conversations that we need to have and explore what play really truly is. Because, yes, we do have to be a play partner. I do think there's a lot of value in being a play partner, but it's about being absorbed. It's about finding things out. It's about making connections. It's about all of those characteristics of effective learning that we know are so vital and so important. So talk to your uh, maybe new team members if you don't know them yet and ask them what they played with as a child. It's a really big indicator of people's journey and where they feel they're happiest. Ask them their interests. What do they do now to in their spare time? I think they're really valuable questions because it helps us to get to know our practitioners. And we know because we know the value of knowing children. We know that that's hugely important as well. So, yes, ask people how and what they played with as a child. It's a really big indicator of their knowledge and experience. So, for example, sometimes uh, I often get um, an answer. Oh, I 
just played with Bratz bowls or I just played with My Little Pony. Um, and uh, But that's where people felt their happiest. That's where they were exploring. But it's also an indicator of what was going on at the time. And I'm sure you could guess sort of how old roughly those people were. Sometimes I hear people that, oh, we were always out. We were never inside. We were always climbing trees. Or I loved playing in a group with with children and we'd, we'd do hide and seek around our clothes and, and things like that. And, and that's a big indicator of their experience for sure, it's an indicator of how they were brought up as well and the sort of things that were around at the time. But play is hugely interesting. And uh, I think people still haven't got to the bottom of why it's so interesting and why we need it. But I know that children really do learn that through their play. And it's up to us as adults is to acknowledge, respect, appreciate that and to help children to push themselves, to know that they can do more and to find out more and to pin that knowledge onto what children are interested in. And then we know that our job is done for that day. And then we think about the exciting things that can happen the next day. That's great. I like the idea that, that children learn best through the things that already interest them. Um, and I know I learned loads of maths when I was at school through dinosaurs, you know, and like thinking about like how many bones a dinosaur had in its spine and all of those sorts of things. Also, listening to you talk so passionately about cooking and spending your weekends in the kitchen made us think about all the ways that you could bring that into a setting in terms of like tying it in with STEM and tying it in with all of these other, I suppose, big ticket educational items that, that you don't think about, but through the thing that you're interested in. Do you think that practitioners bringing their own hobbies into a setting is usually a good thing. It certainly is because that's where our knowledge is and that's where our experience is and that's where our confidence is as well. I think what we need to do is break down our own interests and our own experiences and think about those prerequisites, those things that we that, that, that need to be in place so that we can count the number of eggs that are going into a cake, so that we can measure out a uh, 100 millilitres, so that we know the difference between well, I don't sometimes. The difference between grams and pounds. Uh, sometimes I do have to Google that. So, yes, all of those interests that we have, children are going to know um, that we are interesting people too and that we have um, different experiences and different values and different um, cultures and the huge capacity that we have uh, as a as a people to bring those experiences into the setting so yes they're hugely valuable and they could be seen as maybe some adult-led things but they are um, that is part of our rich curriculum that we are able to provide uh, in the early years foundation stage is that real balance between adult-led and child-led where well, you should never be stuck for something to put on the planning never be stuck for um, an interest and never be stuck in thinking about those things and thinking how do they link to the seven areas of learning because when we look at every single thing we can attach all of those seven areas to any any interest uh, any obsession any particular focus any time of year that we want 
That makes loads of sense. I know I can definitely turn any conversation that I have around the chickens because that that's that's my obsession is I've got chickens in the garden and I work with chickens through a, a charity and, and, and some of the stuff I do outside of work. And anything that anybody says, I can always turn it around to tell them some sort of fascinating fact that's linked to chickens about what they've just said. So that idea that you can tie interests into anything the other way around is definitely also something that I can see where all those links would be. Is there anything that you haven't had the chance to say yet that you would like to say to an audience of early years practitioners that are listening or possibly our health and social care audience or the people working in sort of those ancillary settings around us that might be interested in things they can learn from early years? For me, I think one of the most important things that we need to get really right is um, mentoring and coaching our team through regular opportunities for supervision and regular touching bases, touch points that allow us to reflect on our practice, but also allow us to to grow and to to learn more so that we can be more and, and do more for children too. So those regular touch points are really important. We need supervision that is going to obviously talk about individual children and making sure that we're meeting those needs. But supervision is also there to um, address any issues as they arise. So our leaders and managers need to feel confident that that's the time where we uh, maybe address some issues uh, and have a reflective and professional discussion, uh, bringing it always back to what does this mean for children? Because, for example, if people aren't consistent or they are really involved in something different, so they need to really think about their own practice or, or and growing and developing themselves too. So one of the one of the most important things to discuss in supervision is having a goal. Where are all of your individual practitioners or educators? Where are they going? We all need a goal. We all need to, to think about that. Where are we going in where do we want to be next year? Where do we want to be in three years? Because if you want to be a room leader or if you want to be a, a manager or if you want to have your own setting or if you want to not be in the sector at all, everything that you do every day is is guided by that goal. And we need to do that for children as well. Children love to have goals and things to work towards, but we're all working towards something, a vision of our own, what we want to be like who we want to be like. So have those rich discussions in supervision. Make sure your team have uh, clear personal or professional goals that they're working towards. And then every mentoring and coaching and support and signposting that you're able to give them makes them feel that they've been heard and listened to and gives everybody a reason for jumping out of bed in the morning and arriving at their earliest provision full of vim and vigour um, and ready to start the day. It's important. You, you mentioned like sort of the, the different things that people want to do and having goals across different things. What I'd add to that is that people don't have to have necessarily goals that are about that one progression. It might be goals that they want to get really good at understanding neurodiversity or maybe they want to get really good at understanding the role of nutrition and um, physical activity in, in a setting or any of those things. Because I know that 
again, massive generalisation, but you early years practitioners are really good at thinking about other people and developing other people and sort of how great other people are at things. But sometimes you're not so great at looking at yourselves and where you want to be. Maybe you think it's a bit selfish to think about progression or your own career or any of those things, but you can still set those goals and, and have goals about that are about your development within the role you're currently in to be better at serving a particular area of it or any of those things. And that might naturally lead to some of that other type of progression in terms of career or other things or lead you in directions that you didn't necessarily know existed? Our goal should be our own because if I was given a goal to be a chess master that I would have absolutely no interest whatsoever. I wouldn't know where to start. I wouldn't be motivated. I wouldn't be inspired by any chess master to do that. That would absolutely not be my my interest. Um, what I do know that we really need as individuals, we need to think about our own personal growth and our own personal development, because I know that if we don't develop personally, we don't develop professionally. I would encourage everybody to be on a personal journey. And sometimes that can be difficult. Sometimes that can be uh, easy. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. But looking at ourselves as individuals is really important because that does help us to grow uh, professionally too. So yes, those interests need to be written by that individual person and we can help them and guide them to to help them to to realise their goals. Thank you very much for talking to us today and for chatting us through all of the, I suppose, different pieces of insight that we can thread together through that very short conversation about some of the different things that you do when you're working with settings. I know that we will hear more from you because you are going to, to be involved with Capital Minds Will Go Forward and, and writing some more things for our audience, which we're very, very excited about. Um, and if people have enjoyed this conversation, obviously they can also find the rewatch of the event um, about navigating rising costs that you spoke at for us on the Cash Alumni website. Do you want to tell people where they can find you in terms of your social media and your website in case they want to find out more? Uh, I do have a website. It's alisonfeatherby.co.uk. I love being on social media. So I'm most prevalent, I think, on Twitter, uh, which is at Ali Featherby. I have a Facebook page, Alison Featherby Learning and Development. I have an Instagram page, which is my challenge, and I know I need to get that much better on Instagram. Uh, so that's Alison Featherby underscore the earliest mentor, I think. Um, but you should be able to find me there. And of course, I'm on LinkedIn too. I'm definitely not on TikTok yet, not on YouTube yet. And I haven't got my own podcast yet, but all of those things are things that I'm really looking forward to because there's always something else to do, always something else to learn. And that's what I really like about being in this sector. Thanks for listening to Podcash. If you enjoyed it, please follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. You can also watch many of these conversations by heading over to cashalumni.org.uk and going to the CPD and best practice section of the site. That's cashalumni.org.uk. Thank you.